Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the EG Property Podcast, when we are again turning our attention to ESG and the fundamentals of the future. I'm your host, EG Editor Sam McClary, and in this episode, I'm joined by John Davies, Head of Sustainability at Derwent London, Louise Ellison, Head of Sustainability at Hammerson and Chair of the Better Buildings Partnership, and Savannah DeSavry, Founder and CEO of Built ID. We're gathered to talk about renewable energy in real estate. We take a look at the journey that real estate is on as it tries to shift towards more renewable energy, both on and off site. The power that a commitment to clean energy has among the local community and the vital need for occupiers and owners to be united in their approach and commitment to renewables. We also take a look at the government's new proposals to help better monitor the operational use of energy in buildings, as the greatest leap forward we can take in the journey towards a net zero carbon future is to just use less. As with all conversations around sustainability, the conversation goes much, much deeper than just renewables. And a mild word of warning, this was recorded over Teams and at times the connection is a little bit crackly, so please do bear with us on those few occasions where you may need to lean in just a little bit more. But for now, sit back and enjoy this EG Property Podcast. Today we are talking about renewables. So there are fresh figures that have come out from the International Renewable Energy Agency that reveal that renewable energy production will need to increase eight times faster than it currently is if it's to keep up with current demand. And the investment in renewables will need to increase by 30% to a whopping $131 trillion by 2050 if we really are to avert catastrophic climate change. But with just one quarter of businesses currently sourcing 100% of their energy from renewable sources, there is definitely a big challenge ahead. Uh, But can real estate play a role? And how is renewable energy production being built into their pathways to zero carbon emissions? Uh, Joining me on this podcast today to find out more about the renewable energy journey that real estate is on and how important a commitment to clean energy is from a community and customer point of view. Uh, John Davis, Head of Sustainability at Derwent London, Louise Ellison, Head of Sustainability at Hammerson and Chair of the BBP, and Savannah Savary, Founder and CEO of Built ID. I guess I'll start this conversation with our with our two, two uh, property o- owners, uh, um, John and Louise, to just talk talk to us a little bit about your your journey um, to net zero and the role that renewables plays in that, and and just how critical it is actually on that journey. Uh, John, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Sam. Um, <sighs> Critical, yeah, I think it's absolutely fundamental. Um, I think all of our within the property sector, all of our net zero journeys um, are sort of focused around energy uh, in one form or another. Um, and I think we'll come on to sort of the energy reduction piece in a little bit. But aside from that, you know, what we're powering our buildings with, the provenance, the credentials, and ultimately the carbon, uh, the carbon tag that that that, that energy has is, is critical. Um, so it, it's almost impossible for us to get to a net zero position without the use of renewables. Um, and more specifically, obviously trying to move away from a, a fossil fuel based 
reliance to create our heat uh, and our hot water within our buildings. So yeah, definitely a, a, a fundamental pillar. Fundamental at Hammerson too, Louise? Yeah, of course. Um, we can't run, this, run the assets without using power. Um, so we can reduce them as efficient as we possibly can. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to source some power from somewhere. Um, and that needs to be clean. And that is forming a big part of our our transition pathway uh, around the net positive targets. It always that's that was always a kind of fundamental to it. What is important though is both the your own investment and the procurement piece. Um, some estates are better placed than others to have renewables on them, and we've got quite a big lot, we've got quite a lot of PV across our our estate. Um, and we're growing it, but it's it's always going to be a, the a minority of the total power that we consume, particularly because of the amount of power that's that's required by the occupiers, which is another part of this that we, we can talk about. Um, so it's how you procure. And it's not enough to just be buying clean contracts because they are already in the numbers that the government is um, producing for carbon emissions reductions. If you if we are actually going to deliver what we need to deliver by 2050, there needs to be additional renewable coming in, which goes to your point about the 30% increase. So, so what are some of the some of the the tools that we can use and the the renewables that we should be looking at and the the processes, I suppose, that we can, you know, make make a difference around energy. Well, I think one of the things that's really changed over the last few years is. Um, is the investability of it. So the, the market for renewables, particularly within real estate, has has changed a lot. Um, and it's relatively straightforward now to invest in, in particularly in solar PV on our assets um, and to make that work financially and to to be able to then, you know, recharge that through the service charge. It, it just makes it makes good sense to do it. There, it, it, it can, there, are, there are technical challenges around some of them, but it's it's relatively straightforward. In some instances, there are challenges around local grid and the grid needing upgrading, those kinds of things. And I'm, I'm sure John, John's come across this as well, um, which can be very frustrating. But um, but there fundamentally, it's perfectly possible to get PV on roofs. It's different across different jurisdictions, and we've had challenges in in other countries on it. But but basically, that's relatively straightforward to do. The big game changer, I think, will be around. Um, um, around around power purchase agreements and being able to create genuine power purchase agreements where you are enabling new power to come in through your contract. That market is shifting a lot, um, but um, it's a complex market and it involves a number of different moving parts. So once we get to a stage where we can, where as a sector, we know how to deliver a power purchase agreement, which will align the interests of the developer of the of the renewable facility of the supplier um, whoever is doing that the, the, the complexities around shaping firming and, and making sure that the power arrives in the in a way that we can use it all of those different parties and us and we're able to accept um, the the length of the contracts you require for that for procurement purposes then that will change things again I think that'll be the next phase as we move on John would you would you agree with that yeah, I'd, I'd also sort of say that, you know, as, as some of the points that Louise has mentioned about the the, the market itself, um, I think the market at the moment it, you know, isn't really 
isn't really geared up i think to anywhere near the numbers that you mentioned at the at the top of the at the top of the podcast and i think you know to the point about ppas you know as louise said they are complicated and in some instances unnecessarily complicated you know we need to get investment flowing quickly and clunky you know restrictive you know contracts particularly for the property sector isn't a good thing and doesn't allow for the flexibility that a lot lot of our uh that, that we demand as, as businesses so you know i think the market from that side from the supply side needs to step up and react to that to help enable uh the, the investment into the additionality outside of your own estate because as louis sort of said it's very easy to put on-site renewables but you know we have to be very honest you know if 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 for like so it's, for example our business you know working predominantly if not exclusively within central london it is exceptionally difficult to get any meaningful truly meaningful levels of on-site renewables onto a building to really t- to make a dent within the the power demands um and we also need to think that in the move to net zero, we're looking at the all electrification of buildings. So we're going to be demanding more electricity that's going to be going into that building to to cover the uses that gas traditionally would have done as well. So, you know, it's all very well us sort of saying, yeah, we want it. Um, but it's at the moment outside of putting it on your own building. It's very difficult to do that unless you take the bold step and you move outside of the on-site provision and, and you as an entity say, right, can we gain our own off-site uh, mm-hmm. renewable energy generation points and that's something as a business as Doe and London we're investigating to say right we if we're if the market's not going to come to us we're going to go to the market uh, and, and help and help deliver some of that additionality ourselves. There's no way we're going to be able to deliver the power that we need even now we can't within our within the buildings themselves you just can't and there's also all sorts of other conflicts around it but you know we've invested quite a lot in PV but this this year I think um, our our solar our solar generation was about three percent of landlord energy demand. Wow! Landlord, yeah, that, and that's and we've we've put quite a lot on our our, our <laughs> assets. And that you don't you that's just our demand. That's just for the mall areas of the car parks. Once you start accounting for the occupiers, you're nowhere close. So there needs to be a whole different perspective on where that power is coming from. Now, a lot of those occupiers, um, as we do, will be purchasing the, the, their electricity through Rego back contracts. Um, but there needs to be a lot more of that coming through into the system. And we need to to, to leverage the kind of net zero carbon um, targets and ambitions that have been set by those businesses and our businesses to actually get that renewables flowing. Um, it, 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 there, there needs to be a, a smoother way into um, transitioning capital and finance into that sector. I, de- I definitely want to um, come back to sort of off-site um, in a little bit, but I want to bring in Savannah here to talk talk a bit about demand from, I guess, the the, consu- the consumer side mm-hmm. and and what you what you're seeing in terms of some of the um, community engagement work that you're doing and the demand on developers from from the people, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we see it across the board. I think what's what's really interesting, actually, was in a recent consultation from one of the local councils, um, when it said, what would you prioritise, you know, in new development in the borough? Actually, the number two in the list of everything that people mentioned was sustainable buying, sustainable building design and actually using clean energy sources. That was before affordability and functionality that came as number two. so we see it in that sort of local community setting. We also see it actually with the occupiers of commercial buildings themselves. 
you know, we have a, um, an Occupy engagement consultation live at the moment, and it's for a company with offices across four different countries. And I'm just looking at their results thus far. And when it says to, you know, in terms of how would you like to see office building sustainability budgets allocated, clean energy is getting 45% of the budget, you know, compared to air purifying initiatives with only 31 and biodiversity with only 24. So you're seeing it across the board. And when it comes to that interesting point that was just made around, do we actually have to you know, look elsewhere to you know, have our own um, renewable energy projects? I think that's a huge community appetite to support something like that as well. We recently have done a project for um, a big clean energy company who are building off the coast of Ireland an offshore wind farm with 61 um, turbines. And actually what they found is they were very concerned because of that vocal minority who didn't want to see these turbines and the initial reaction of negativity they'd had there, they assumed it was going to be a tough process. But actually, once they started reaching the silent majority through Give My View, it actually turned out that 96% of people who voted, and that was over, I think we had nearly 6,000 people vote over the course of a month, um, they felt neutral to positive about Ireland doing more to generate clean energy. They actively wanted to see, I think it was 75% actively wanted to see more clean energy projects in Ireland. So they were doing their part to help address the, you know, the global climate crisis. So I think it's both on the occupier side and where people live, it's the number one topic. If you want to get people to engage constructively with your project, we say there's two things you need to make sure you're asking them about. Sustainability and how you're going to be able to combat social isolation. Those are the two things that regardless of age or demographic or geography, people care most about. Um, John, I wonder if you can come in here and tell us a little bit about the projects that that Derwent has for for off site and um, and what you're doing and I don't know if there is you know Derwent is uh, sort of specially placed to be able to do that or whether we could see more of your compatriots doing doing similar similar work. Yeah, definitely. I think there's some some amazing stats there actually from from Savannah on the on looking at how how the wider community look at look at renewable energy. Definitely, and I think that the off site discussion actually doesn't necessarily have to be far off site um it can be near off site you know and looking at how that can benefit the immediate the immediate community i think is an absolutely fascinating idea but looking at looking at our business specifically um we are currently investigating and and uh looking at how we can utilize our scottish estate uh to enable us to move into generating our own renewable um, energy supplies um not necessarily something traditionally in the mainstay of a, of a london property company um moving moving well outside of the the, the tr- traditional bricks and mortar uh, a- a arena um but it's something that we felt you know we we have it at our uh, you know we have it uh, as part of our portfolio as at our disposal uh, and why can't we look at it in a slightly different way? You know, why can't we look at it to support our wider business needs, in this case, our net zero ambition, uh, but also potentially what it can also offer our customers, our occupiers? Um, because, you know, if we look at community in a slightly more elongated way, not just obviously that our, our next door neighbours in, 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 uh, in the houses and the, and the buildings next door, but also those within our buildings, you know, helping them into this net zero journey as well. Um, because what we're finding is the more we're talking to our, our, our occupiers, our customers, the more they're finding it difficult to move outside of the Rego back tariff world and into something which is additional, adding their their element or their contribution to additionality. So if we can help unlock that, 
because we have the resources available to us, the the um, the the land available to us. Why can't we make that connection and you know and look at that in a slightly more holistic ma holistic manner, as opposed to sort of saying, okay, well this is the we've sorted the landlord part of the equation. Um, you know that's all great, tick. Uh, but actually, you know, can we look at a broader impact? Uh, and a broader support for the whole movement to, towards net zero. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully later this year, we'll be able to give you some further details on what that Scottish estate part means. Can't give you too much away at the moment, mm -hmm. uh, but we've certainly got some really exciting stuff um, that, that, that's on the that's on the drawing board. So uh, hopefully if we get invited back at some point at uh, <laughs> end of the year next, we can we can give you a bit more detail. I was going to say watch this space, but listen to this space, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree with John Harley that it's, it's actually one part of a bigger piece. And I think what's interesting, it's on the residential side, but I think it applies. I'd be curious actually to know if the others think that it applies just as much to commercial. But um, as you know, Sam, we recently did a consultation for an all party parliamentary group to identify the bottlenecks for housing delivery um, for, their, for their white paper. And what was interesting is that the feedback that came back was firstly, which I thought was really revealing, 71% of the stakeholders in the industry, housing industry, said that net zero requirements help rather than hinder the delivery of high quality new homes and they help with selling them. But actually then some of the feedback we had through from people, comments were around, you know, in the quest to deliver net zero and deliver a profit, it's inevitable that some concessions elsewhere will need to be made. So at the moment, it's all stick, no carrot, net zero and high quality design should arguably be factored into Section 106 viability equations. Um, and that was a theme that we saw a lot coming through from, from, sectors in, uh, from stakeholders in both the private sector, but also actually people in the public sector responded echoing it. Um, I'd be curious, to, you know, I don't know if the same is, holds true for commercial, but if landlords are trying to go above and beyond to do better on this because their tenants care about it and they care about their own ESG footprint, I feel like there's also something that needs to be done from the government side in order to actually really encourage and enable this to happen. Yes, obviously, there needs to be some consistency around policy um, and particularly around uh, around planning. And, and when we get lots of kind of conflicting messages and that there, there's always a sort of um, a sense of it, it's it's going to cost, it's going to be more expensive. Fundamentally, no building that is being designed now should be um, anything other than net zero carbon, because those are the buildings that are going to be there. So we, you know, it's very clear from the from the sixth carbon budget that that's what where we have to be. That's what we have to do. So it, you, there needs to be a very very clear steer on that in terms of policy that you you're not going to be able to build a building unless it achieves this. Because if we wait for 2030 to do that, then all of the buildings that are being designed between now and 2030 will then be delivered between 2030 and 2040. We know how long this stuff takes to do. So it has to be designed in from this particular point. And the other side of it is, yes, the the some of the occupiers are wanting it, but we can't wait for the occupiers to want it before we deliver it, because it, it, we will be left with uninvestable assets. And we're already having conversations with our JV partners and, and potential um, kind of investors where we're capital raising to um, and, and they are asking some very, very specific questions about the, any new buildings being net zero carbon and being designed to be net zero carbon. And unless that's being delivered, then you won't get the money for it. Hmm. Um, so not all of investors are going to be that that sophisticated in terms of their thinking, but it will happen quite quickly. Um, because you just you just won't be able to raise money on these kinds of assets and uh, particularly for developments unless you know how to do it and know how to deliver it that's putting an awful lot of pressure on the industry to start delivering um and understanding 
what net zero carbon really means because you're 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 then having to to really understand the embodied carbon targets and there are net zero carbon um, targets that have been set out by Letty at the moment which incorporate all of the embodied and the post post occupancy um, operational emissions as well um, and they are reflecting the, the grid emissions and those kinds of things and and, and the, the transition of the of the grid to clean energy and how that's going to what the forecasts for that are over the next few years so there are there are targets out there but this is very much a work in progress so a lot of pressure has been putting on put on the industry to do this we need to to really develop those skills and and to give a lot of visibility to this um because it's going to be it's going to be a, a tough challenge and if everybody kind of looks at this and says well, this is going to be really difficult, really, really expensive, and it's too hard to do. Then we're not going to make the changes that we need to make. And you talked there about a lot of a lot of pressure being being put on the industry, and there's certainly a lot of pressure being put on on the the the, the landlord community. We have talked a little bit around um, occupiers um, today already, and and Louise, you said you know some some occupiers are, de- are demanding um, and using. Um, renewable energy, but not all of them. So, how do we, how do we make this a a joint uh, a, a joint imperative? I suppose. I think. I mean, there's going to have to be some some sort of compulsion on occupiers to to be working with landlords. There's a number of complexities about this. I mean, on the one hand, there are occupiers who who for you know for all of their own reasons and targets, they want to do this and they're doing the right thing. We also really struggle at the same time, in many cases, with some with the same occupiers who, you know, I've got we've got a big PV array that we want to put on, a, on an asset at the moment. And that what's been delaying it for about the past 18 months is sign off for one of the occupiers. You know, it's not doesn't it doesn't make, you know, it's just being used as leverage. You need my you need our agreement. So you're not going to get, you know, it's that kind of things going on. And that goes on all the time over everybody's portfolio everywhere. And those kinds of conversations cannot so it goes back to the green leasing those kinds of combinations we have to get past that we have to stop having those conversations so that's one area where the occupiers really need to get their act together and the other is you know we there's a lot of we are being we're being expected as landlords to provide data for the occupied areas of the asset and report on those emissions and those scope three emissions are being looked at as ours but they the occupiers themselves are often using offsets to actually claim their own net zero carbon targets and applying the offsets to those to those areas as well. So there's this real kind of confusion around boundaries about what who's responsible for what and how they're being dealt with. So if we are going to really get these buildings to be net zero carbon, including those scope three emissions, then there has to be a compulsion for the occupiers to actually engage with us about it and work with us to make sure that they are um, that, that they, those emissions are being reduced properly. Um, and I mean, I obviously speak very much from the retail perspective. Um, I think the office, the office sector, is potentially further a, a, along on this, and there's, it, the dialogue with them with that sector is, is slightly different, um, and has sort of um, there are different incentives, different things driving it. Um, often with the retailers, you know, their real estate for, put, footprint is relatively small compared to their, you know, global transport footprint, for example. But nonetheless it has to be dealt with in a much more systematic way than it is at the moment. John, is the is the office market further further ahead? Um, I think the the struggles are the same. I think engagement across the board in real estate is 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 nowhere near what it should be. Louise is Louise is is, is certainly bang on the money there. Um, I think what what interests me in this particular discussion is 
this is where the beauty of net zero then starts to get into areas that traditionally would never have thought they had a part to play. So I'm thinking of the agency community. I'm thinking of the lawyer community. Mm-hmm. All those people who enable those leverage discussions to take place. And as a landlord creates such a level of frustration in something which should be it should be it should be a good experience, you know, moving into a new space or or, or what have you should be a good experience. And I think this is where those communities can really, really pick up the mantle and say, OK, what what can we do to make that transition better and easier? And I think there does need to be a bit of compulsion, say, from the governmental side of things. And hopefully we get on to talk about the, the sort of the, the the recent consultations that have been released uh, uh, yesterday, where it, it's going to hopefully bring the two parties closer together. Um, but I certainly want to see those 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 particular industries stepping up and saying, right, this is how we can make this a lot a little bit less frictional, you know, and create a little bit more movement and ease into these discussions. Because as Louise said. We as a landlord are expected to do quite a lot in terms of carbon accounting, and we and there are still huge areas of of misunderstanding as to as to whose carbon is it, um, and where does and whose balance sheet does it sit on. Um, but I think you know to, to to enable us to get to the net zero the net zero place, you know, we need to do that accurately, but we also need help and support to create those numbers accurately and everybody divvying it up correctly. There's a, a great invitation to the con- consultancy uh, community, isn't it? That they have time, time for them to step up and um, play their role too. Um, let, let's talk about um, the recent consultations, and because uh, you know, as, as you pointed out earlier, John, if we are moving to um, fully electric buildings, great that we can sort of, if we can, run them off renewables, but actually. The, one of the greatest ways to reduce our impact on the planet is to is to use less of stuff and uh, less energy, isn't it? So um, I wonder if um, John or Louise, you can talk us through. I guess the the the, um, the the big one for me was the performance in use consultation that came out and the um, potential um, introduction of the the neighbours scheme, which always makes me think of. Um, neighbours the, the tv show <laughs> it was totally intentional when they invented that <laughs> and it worked it did the theme tune is playing in my head now uh, but yeah well, I wonder if you could talk us through what that what that means and what it could do I suppose I, I mean I think having neighbours is fun, I mean it's a, it's a fundamental shift it's it's really a, a, such good news um, and obviously, I would say that as chair of the BBP, I'm immensely proud that the BBP has managed to finally kind of, you know, really work with neighbours and bring that to the UK. Um, the fact that um, it's been referenced so clearly in the in in the consultation is just sort of adding adding to that. And it does it would appear that we're moving to a place now where the government is really acknowledging that we have to look at operational performance and use. Um, that's what will drive real change. And this is kind of where you know where we were wanting to be 10, 10 or more years ago when the discussions were having around EP we were, were being had around EPCs to start with, um, but you know we are we are there now and I think this 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 will happen and it has the potential to really transform the market and not just the top of the market and you can often be 
you can often sort of say, well, it's it, it, particularly with Australia, it's that it's the kind of it's that top end of the market, the premium offices, the prime buildings that really get changed. But actually, it doesn't. It flows right the way down through the market because you just you get a you get a different level of prime and and, and everything else follows suit. You also get much better expertise. You get much better modelling, much better data. The, the the market moves on, and it really has transformed the way. Um, uh, the way offices are designed and operated um, and monitored. And I can see that happening here relatively quickly. Some of the challenges will be around the age of our stock, the variety of our stock. Um, and uh, there is a huge tail. I mean, we have to be honest about that. Um, and it will need to be driven right the way through that tail as well. Um, and it will also start to reveal that there are some big challenges with office buildings. And also, this is only looking at office buildings at the moment. Neighbours only looks at office buildings at the moment. It'll need, to, it'll need to widen out to other sectors. There's a lot of work to be done here to actually make this really have the teeth that it needs to have and, and deliver the change that we need. But it's in, incredibly exciting, exciting. And as I say, I'm hugely proud of the BBP's work <laughs> in this area. Just say that again. I may say it a few more times. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> John, you're, you're um, uh, implementing Neighbours across the Derwent portfolio anyway. Mm. It's voluntary at the moment. Yes, we are. Yeah, so we, we were one of the, uh, in amongst the group of nine that uh, helped uh, sort of bring what was then DFP to life and then subsequently working with the rest of the team to to bring Neighbours uh, UK and subsequently landing it into, into a mainstream um, assessment method. And I think you know, it, it is going to be one of the key tools for us as a business in the, in the net zero movement to try and demonstrate, you know, the, the energy efficiency or, or the performance of, of our buildings. And for me, I think what, what this really gives, um, you know, it gives it gives the Ron Seals, the Ron Seals sticker to these things. You know, other, other wood care product, products are available, etc. But, you know, it gives that kind of view to a customer, to an occupier which is really, really important because what we lack at the moment, we we try to articulate the benefits of our buildings from a number of different angles, you know, flexibility, health and well-being, productivity, you know, commerciality, all those things. But if you've just got something which is impartial, which is so easy to uh, so easy to read, so easy to use, it just allows you to, to, to really sift through that. And I think, you know, Louise is right. You know, it will it will attract at the prime end of the market. And, you know, the, the, the UK market is, is far more diverse than the Australian market. Um, uh, but the real the real benefit is going to be when it starts to get into that existing stock. Um, and, and it will. Um, and it's really good that government are looking at this as a viable method to create that. I mean, obviously, it is a consultation. Um, so this is not this is not fait accompli. But I'm really hopeful, you know, the glass half full moment that I'm really hopeful that it does come through in its fullest form because it will get buildings to, to, to a place where they need to be. And, and it, but it's not going to be without challenges, Louise said. But one of the one of the area, the biggest challenges is going to be within the development market. So the construction, and the operation market, the FM market. We're not used to building buildings in the way that neighbours is going to mean that we're going to need to build them. We're not used to managing the buildings in the way that neighbours is asking us to manage them. So there's going to be a huge learning curve, education, uh, a little bit of there's, there's going to be a few tears before bedtime for sure. Um, but there's, that's the way that these things you know, often have to go to get to where we need to be. But it's huge encouraging definitely. Savannah are you really interested to hear your point of view actually because um, you know one of the one of the key proponents of of this scheme is that 
um, the rating has to be public, be displayed in the building and displayed online. And I wonder from a, you know, sort of engagement and openness point of view, whether that will actually um, be a really powerful tool for the for the real estate community. Yeah, I think you can't you can't underestimate. And I still get surprised by how much I, I still underestimate the importance of transparency and trust in terms of transforming that relationship and dialogue with a community. I remember when we first started working in um, Kensington and Chelsea, we got quite nervous because we were doing a huge amount of work for the council. We were doing work for Cadogan. We started doing work for Cross Street on retail. And we were like, God, are they going to get fatigued? Are we going to start to see the novelty of engaging with decision makers around the built environment wear off? And actually, rather fascinatingly, what we saw instead is every single project we do there now, we get more and more engagement. And I think it's because people now feel that they, they can trust in that community, that they can actually have a meaningful say, the developers will listen to them and the council will listen and they'll actually be able to influence their built environment. It's that transparency of knowing this is what we said was most important and we get to see are they going to actually act on it or not. And so I think we've, that's really changed my perspective, seeing how important it is to people that you have that transparency, um, the impact it can have. And I think it, I think the impact is, is across the board. It's not just... And it was interesting earlier what Louise was saying around, you know, the retailers actually often not really pulling their weight necessarily. And actually, I think we'll hopefully start to see that change because I was speaking to a sustainability consultancy the other day and they're working with one of the big fast fashion brands. Um, and their challenges is they're doing a whole sustainability strategy because people are moving away from fast fashion. Consumer trends are changing based on sustainability and their concerns around, you know, how far is there, has, you know, has the products, the consumer products had to travel? How actually eco-friendly are those brands and where you, your physical store, if you have one, is still the physical embodiment of your brand. So I'm hoping that, you know, actually being able to, the more we can have actually badges of transparency around, do you align? Does your, does your purpose, your principles and your, your commitment to them align with mine as a consumer, whether that's an occupier or whether it's actually, you know, a, a high street consumer is, can't be underestimated, I don't think. With a lot of those, particularly fashion the their climate risk um, and the areas that they're working on is a lot of that is through their supply chain that mm. is exactly where it should be focused because that's where all of their massive impacts are just look at the amount of water that goes into a pair of jeans before you buy your next pair <laughs> um, so their real estate footprint is relatively small so it that's kind of where we were before it, you, they need to be compelled to talk to us about mm. helping resolve what's going on in their stores and yeah. not putting it not leaving it to that that's something that we can do through offsetting yeah I totally agree and we recently did a um, during the last lockdown we did a project about retail repositioning and trying to you know regenerate the shopping center and we you know one of the questions they asked was actually in response to COVID specifically how can we use our vacant spaces to try and help the community and yes you got the answers around testing rapid testing centers and you know um, medical clinics coming in, but the vast majority, overwhelming majority of, I don't know, sort of 500 responses, you know, free text responses was independent local shops. A lot of people are out of jobs. Let's have shops where we can go um, support local artisans, local producers, and not only talking about it because they wanted to support their community, which I think is a really interesting trend to come out of the pandemic is that the grassroots activation of COVID mutual aid, we're seeing it extending into people saying, I want to have a physical place where I can go and support other people in my community who are doing cool stuff. That's what I'd like to use my high street for is to connect with them and to support. Um, but also people say we want to we want to see independent retailers. We want to see local suppliers, et cetera, because of the carbon footprint. So 
I think it will take a while, but I think smart retailers will hopefully savvy up to the fact that actually, if you want to get the best spots in order to actually attract people, you're going to have to think about holistically your whole sort of carbon footprint. But maybe that's probably that's probably rather naively optimistic of me, but it's my hope at least. <laughs> I love um, that every time we have a discussion around sustainability and ES ESG, we, we start with one specific um, <laughs> sort of uh, topic, but it always broadens out to something much, much wider than that. This isn't ever just about one thing or one, uh, one part of mm. any industry. This has to be um holistic as uh, as savannah said it has to be everyone and everything and and as understanding that things will change and we'll need to adapt along along the way um and hopefully you know a, a shift to to clean energy a shift to a mandatory reporting scheme that enables that transparency will will really help drive us forward on on that journey mm. i know we could talk about this for <laughs> Uh, the same time again and then maybe again again um, but, <laughs> but for now we'll, we'll have to wrap it up for, for this episode of the EG Property Podcast but we will be back um, with more on this topic uh, again soon so thank you very much for joining us Louise, John and Savannah Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EG Property Podcast. We hope you found the content insightful and helpful. If you'd like more of the same and to keep up with all the latest news, views, analysis and research that the EG Group has to provide, be sure to sign up to all of our property podcasts and subscribe to Radius Data Exchange for unlimited access to all of our content and comprehensive commercial real estate data. Thank you.